This evening we're going to, the, the title of our, our message this evening is Peace on Earth. This morning we're going to explore that same theme, but a little differently, because this morning we're going to look at the theme of the peace and sword of Christ's coming. The peace and sword of Christ's coming. And uh, so if you would, before we uh, engage God's Word, if you would join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, we celebrate this morning, we celebrate this time of year, the birth of the Savior, the Son, your one-of-a-kind Son whom you gave on our behalf. We rejoice in that, who you promised in advance many promises, many prophecies that are fulfilled in His coming. Help us to know Christ Jesus more this morning. Open our hearts and eyes to Him. In Jesus' name, Amen. I want to begin in Isaiah chapter 9. Two of the three verses I'm going to read are actually very familiar around this time of year. The first one, maybe not quite so familiar. We usually start with verse 6 of that chapter when we think of Christmas types of verses because of its promise. But let's begin in Isaiah 9 and beginning in verse number 5. Every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning. Will be fuel for the fire. For. He's about to tell us why that is. For to us a child is born. To us a son is given. And... The government, the rule, the dominion that this child born will have, that government will be on his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. I think, I think some of the other translations capture it a little better of the increase of his government and peace. There will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his, great, uh, over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of Yahweh or the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. Verse 5, the one that's not as familiar as the others, it pictures the peace that verses 6 and 7 talk about. It pictures it in practical terms. Army boots and bloodstained clothes will no longer be necessary and therefore will be burned. Because there will be peace. Jesus came to bring peace. And what is the cause of the peace that Isaiah speaks about in verse 5? Well, According to verse 6 and following, it's a child born, a son given, upon whom the government will be built. It should be no surprise, therefore, that when we arrive at the birth of Christ, that the angels brought the message to the shepherds in the field, saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace to humanity out of God's good pleasure. Peace to mankind. 
But what does surprise us um, with the coming of Christ are a few other things involved with his coming. For instance, Jesus saying something like this in Matthew 10, Do not suppose that I've come to bring peace to the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. Wait a minute, that doesn't fit. (laughs) Help me out with that, right? I mean, the government will be on his shoulders. The increase of his government and peace will be no end. I didn't come to bring peace, but a sword. That doesn't sell Christmas cards, by the way. I am not 100% sure, but I would put good money on it that Hallmark has not yet used that one on a Christmas card. And, and actually, the gospel version of the Christmas story is not very Hallmark-friendly either. Why? For the simple reason that for the government to be on the shoulders of Jesus means that it will no longer be on someone else's shoulders. Somebody else might object, in other words. They might, they might think they have something to say about that. So this morning we're going to explore the peace and sword of Christ's coming. How, how can both be true? In what sense are both true? How is Jesus bringing peace? What does His kingdom and peace mean for us as His followers, as His disciples? We're going to explore this under three headings this morning. The first, the sword of Christ's coming. The second, the peace of Christ's coming. And uh, thirdly, the, the, uh, the sword you face. The sword you as a disciple. For those that are followers of Jesus, the sword you face. So let's begin under the, the first heading, the sword of Christ's coming. And I'm going to now read uh, what is a somewhat familiar uh, Christmas text uh, from Matthew chapter 2. I'm going to read it in its entirety. Matthew 2, beginning in verse 1. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where? is the one who has been born King of the Jews. We, we saw His star when it rose and have come to worship Him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written, but you, Bethlehem in the land of Judah are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find out, report to me, so that I too may go and worship him. After they had heard the king, they went on their way and The star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child and his mother Mary. And they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another 
rude. When they had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said. Take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. So he got up, took the child and his mother during the night and left for Egypt, where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. When Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious and he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under. In accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. Then what was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. A voice is heard in Ramah weeping and great mourning. Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. Christ coming to rule was a threat to Herod and his throne. Now Herod, the pseudo-king of the Jews really a puppet for Rome, he was an Edomite, Um, historically an enemy of the Jews and of Israel. Uh, He did not have a legitimate claim to be king of the Jews, but he was king of the Jews in a manner of speaking. Uh, Imagine today how the Jews would feel in Israel if they had a Palestinian prime minister. and kind of get the sense of what that might feel like to have Herod as king. Historians tell us that that Herod, uh, evidently for for good reason in some cases, but he was extremely paranoid of those who were around him, always afraid that he would be taken out of power. Um, He had killed many out of this paranoia, uh, or maybe they were really trying to get him. I don't, you know, is it paranoia if they're... Anyway. His wife's brother, who was high priest... Uh, His wife, eventually, his mother-in-law, and there's a lot of guys that might have done that, but I'm just saying, it's in a long list of things for for Herod. Sorry, mother-in-laws, I'm just saying that that, you know. (laughs) Um, Two of his sons at first, and then five days before his death, five days before his death, he killed his third son. He actually, because he was so hated had imprisoned a bunch of very popular leaders so that right before he died, he imprisons them and had given orders that upon his death, they should all be killed so that at least somebody would be mourning in Israel when he died. Now, the good news is, is they had enough sense not to go ahead with the plan once he died. You know, why should we do that now? So they, they, they didn't actually carry it out. But that's the kind of guy he was. So this... The story that we have here in Matthew 2 is in perfect keeping with his nature and who he, who he was. Exactly what we might expect. Talk of a coming Messiah is equivalent to talk of a legitimate king. Messiah, Christ, same, same word, we, we, we translate Christ more often than not. That, that actually is, you, you might as well think king, king of the Jews. A specific kind of king, one who fulfills prophecies, one who will rule as God's king over his people, but king nonetheless, never less than king. And so they have word that the Messiah has been born, that's a threat to Herod. 
and he wants him dead, just like he wants anyone else dead that he thinks could threaten his throne. If rumors of a Messiah coming weren't enough, when wealthy magi from the east come, entourage in tow, to find one born king of the Jews, Herod is fit to be tied. Now, we, we always envision, you know, three kings. It doesn't tell us there were three. We don't really know how many there were. We, we, we know there's more than one because it's plural. We suppose three because there were three gifts mentioned, but there could have been ten, there could have been two. We, we, we don't know. But however how many there were, it was not, their, their whole entourage was not limited to them. They would have had many with them. I mean, it would have been an entire caravan of people coming to pay homage to this king. It was a common thing, I mean, certainly not unheard of, for dignitaries like this to travel great distances and bring wealth with which and by which to pay homage to a king. So imagine when Herod sees them coming, he's probably at first thinking, oh, they're, they're here to pay me homage. This is going to be great. And they say, oh, so where's the one that's been born king of the Jews? That's not what he wanted to hear. The Magi announced that they had come to worship this one born king of the Jews and They don't offer gifts to Herod. They don't pay homage to him. That was not the purpose of their visit. It was a threat to Herod. But apparently not just Herod. It says, and all of Jerusalem. All of Jerusalem? (laughs) Well, they were disturbed, just as Herod was. But all of Jerusalem is used representatively of Jerusalem, the capital city, much like we use Washington, and this is an actual headline from this past summer, with, with Washington in an uproar of President Trump's last tweets, the White House is doubling down on defending the president. Could probably be a headline every day of the year this past year, but Washington is used in that title, that headline, like Jerusalem is used here. It's not literally the whole city. It's not literally this city is doing, but it's those that are in power, those in control, the, the, the who's who of Washington. Jerusalem in this context refers to the who's who of, in Jerusalem society. They're disturbed by this. Who, who allowed one to be born Messiah without talking to us? Why aren't we in the know? What's going on here? Anytime peace comes to a society where there has not been peace, that peace opposes those who are disturbing the peace. It is, if you will, a sword to those who are disturbing the peace. Mary's song in Luke's Gospel, when Elizabeth came to visit, describes it in in, in really language that's easy for anyone to understand. She says, he has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but has sent the rich away empty. You see, lifting up the humble, filling the hungry with good things, had an effect on somebody else. The ones that were doing the oppressing. If Jesus' coming means peace to anyone, and it does, it will of necessity disturb others. It will of necessity disturb those in power. 
Well, Herod, as would be his custom, takes action to do his best to make sure this threat is eliminated. In verse 7, uh, verse seven, Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. This wasn't mere curiosity. He does it secretly because he's plotting a murder. In verse 8, he says, When you find him, report to me directly that I might go and worship him. But he has no intention of worshiping. He only has intention of killing. We presume that the Magi don't know this, and they certainly don't yet, but they will be warned later. In a dream, not to return by the same way. Well, that infuriates Herod, and he goes on a killing rampage. What happened to the idea of a child born bringing peace? Was not peace for that small village. Was not peace for those families whose children were killed. It was a small village. I mean, estimates based on the size of what Bethlehem would have been at that time. Honestly, there would range somewhere, if you take the entire vicinity, somewhere between, say, six and a dozen children. But does it really matter whether it was one or 20 or 500? I mean, if you're in those families, that doesn't seem to, to bring much of a consolation. It reminds us of Pharaoh's killing of the Hebrew boys in Egypt, the babies just prior to the, you know, the, the deliverance of Israel out of Egypt. Moses was rescued to rescue. And in this scene, because of the, 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 the angel telling Joseph in a dream to get out of there, Jesus was rescued in order to rescue us. He was spared in order that he might die later and, and bring peace and rescue us from a greater enemy. In fact, these young boys in the vicinity of Bethlehem die instead of Jesus. They die instead of Jesus. Think about that. Had he been found, he would have died. Prematurely, not at the Father's timing, not in a way that would fulfill prophecy, but they would not have. Their lives in exchange for his, at least for the moment. This sword of Jesus' coming comes from human resistance to the king. <clears throat> but, but how? How will the peace come? We, we see how the sword comes, human resistance to the king. But how does the peace come? Well, the peace of Christ's coming begins with the announcement of his reign. It begins with the announcement of his reign. First, John the Baptist comes announcing the kingdom has come. Then after Herod kills John, Jesus starts proclaiming the good news of the kingdom's arrival, the reign of Christ. The announcement puts people on notice. There's a new sheriff in town, so to speak. In other words, there's a new king, there's a new order, everything has changed, and you better start living in line with the new king. That's what this pronouncement does. Yeah, many, and, and, and yes, the Scripture does at times infer that the Gospel invites people to a banquet. That is a parable that is told. But by and large, the picture 
of gospel presentation is proclamation of the reign of Christ, an announcement of something that has become real. In our modern day and age, we've turned the gospel into entirely an invitation that appeals to people to RSVP with yes, possibly, if you don't mind, almost apologetically. That's not the gospel. It's hardly an invitation since they will in fact be judged by Christ even if they RSVP to decline the invitation before the deadline. Christ is reigning. You don't make Him Lord. Now please make Jesus Lord. No, He actually is. He's coming, He's reigning, and we proclaim that. We announce that fact. You can't make Him any more or less Lord. You can either submit to His reign or not submit to His reign, but you can't make Him more or less Lord. So the peace of Christ's coming begins with the announcement of His reign. According to Colossians 1.20 or Ephesians 1.10, Christ's reign is about reconciling the rift between heaven and earth. Bringing everything back together again. Well, when did the rift occur? Well, the rift occurred in the Garden of Eden when man rejected God and His law and said, we're going to do things ourselves." Man was sent out of the garden, away from the presence of God. And ever since then, death has ravaged the human race. Darkness. And so Jesus came to restore the rift between heaven and earth. So that God might move back in with His people. That's fundamentally the story of the gospel, the story of the Bible. Isaiah cries out, Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains would tremble before you. Well, that means that there was a separation. If he needs to rend the heavens and come down, something was separating God and man, God and the creation. And in the incarnation of Jesus Christ, God has rent the heavens and has come down. God and creation come back together actually in in one man. God and creation in one, Jesus Christ. In order that that, that, that all of creation might be reconciled to God. Through the incarnation, God is reconciling the world to Himself. So the peace of Christ coming begins with the announcement of His reign. The peace of Christ comes through the forgiveness of sins. Under the reign of Christ, humans are reconciled to God through the forgiveness of sins. Paul in Colossians 1, after declaring that God is reconciling heaven and earth together, says, And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. This is how the English Standard Version reads. It's... Well, more clear, I think. He has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. You, who were once alienated and hostile in mind and doing evil deeds. We, we were enemies of God. That's what it means to be alienated and hostile. We were separated, strangers, and we were enemies. We lived as enemies. And God is reconciling heaven and earth, and in the process, He's reconciling you. How's He reconciling you and me? 
in the body of flesh by the death of Jesus in order to present us holy and blameless and above reproach. According to verses 13 and 14 of the same chapter, that reconciliation has its foundation in the forgiveness of sins. Through the forgiveness of sins, it tells us that we are transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of the Son that God loves. So the the reign of Christ is announced, and then we get transferred into that kingdom through the forgiveness of our sins. The, The peace of Christ comes, first it's announced, second it comes through the forgiveness of sins, but thirdly, the peace of Christ comes as His disciples. If you're a follower of Jesus, that's you, that's me, that's us. The peace of Christ comes as His disciples are transformed into the likeness of the King. Now, this is the part we often kind of skip right past. We wonder, where's the peace? I don't see the peace. Why aren't we having the peace? Well, because we miss this part, and it's an important part. Back to Isaiah's picture of the child king, where he says, For unto us a child is born, and unto us a son is given, and the government, the rule, the dominion, the government shall be on his shoulders. What's the image of this child born, son given, government on his shoulders? Well, it's a picture of innocence ruling, of upside down power. Adults are supposed to be in charge. The wise, not the foolish. It's it's a picture of one foolhardy enough not to have political strategies behind every move. A child king would, would really be quite the opposite of somebody ruling with Machiavellian politics with all its cunning and scheming and unscrupulous ways of advancing oneself into power. And, and, and so this child king is going to come and do everything opposite of what the world would think. And we find that actually in Jesus. He's not going to come to power by People dying for him. He's going to come to power by dying for them. He's not going to come to power by being served, but by serving. And on and on and on. We could, we could just stay here for hours listing all the different ways that Jesus really is just that. But there's something else we discover in the, in, in the Gospels and the New Testament, and that's that in order for the peace of Christ to come, the king's followers have to become like this child also. The same upside-down power, the same foolish ideas of how the world should run. Whoever would be great must become the slave of all. (laughs) That doesn't get you. That won't sell. (laughs) It just doesn't. Jesus said it this way in Matthew chapter 5. He said, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other cheek also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Give to the one who asks you, and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes His Son to rise on the evil and the good, and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your, uh, your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that. That's how we bring peace. We become like a child too. We do these foolish things that Jesus describes. 
but it transforms the world. Paul talked about it as well. For instance, in Romans, Paul tells us in chapter 5, verse 1, Since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul highlights the fact that our first place of getting reconciled is with God. But then he, that peace with God is supposed to transform peace on earth. Notice, he goes on to say in chapter 12 of Romans, after saying we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, he says, if it is possible, as far as depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Now, we tend, I mean, I'm, I'm going to speak for me and, and, and the guy I look at in the mirror, okay? So that's what I'm talking about when I say we here. And maybe it's not you. But we, me and the guy I look at in the mirror, we tend to think that, that live at peace as far as it depends on you is kind of like, do your best, but hey, it's not all on you. I mean, just, you know, make a good effort. And if that doesn't work, then you're released from your obligation. But that's not what Paul's talking about, because look at what follows as he describes what it means to live at peace as far as it depends on you. Verse 19, do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. In other words, people do you wrong, don't do wrong back. If, if God wants wrong to be done back, then he can take care of that. That's what it means, leave room for God's wrath. You don't do it. You don't have wrath. You, you entrust the Lord with that. For it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary. In other words, don't take revenge. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. In other words, don't just not take revenge. Don't stay neutral. Set about feeding him if he's hungry. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. And doing this, you'll heap burning coals on his head. In other words, there's, there's the true weaponry, love. Do not be overcome by evil, but... Don't just stop it, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. We actually are given a game plan for overcoming evil. What is it? Do good. I think, sadly, we've thrown away some things with the Reformation. I love the Reformation. We, we, we acknowledge the truth that good works don't merit our salvation. But listen, I think we've thrown good works out the window sometimes and don't realize they may not merit salvation, but they will change the world. I mean, after all, Jesus came doing good works and then said, follow me. They will change the world. And he calls us to them. To the Philippians, Paul says it this way. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves. Not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. You think that would bring peace to the world? That would transform and give us in earth as it is in heaven. And as the church begins to live this way, what we're going to see is the world will become more clearly defined as the world, and the church will become more clearly defined as the church. And then he goes on to say in Ephesians, Paul writes to the Ephesians, Be completely humble and gentle, be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. And the chapter ends telling us some of what's included in this make every effort. 
Verse 31 of Ephesians 4. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. Follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children, and walk in the way of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. To to put it another way, the peace of Christ's kingdom will not come if his followers follow the ways of Herod and not the ways of the Lamb. But to be honest with you, we're a little bit more like Peter. We're, we're apt to follow the ways of Herod. We're apt to pick up the sword and deal with our problems. That's, that's our nature. And that's what needs to be put to death. And instead we pick up a cross and suffer for others. And that brings peace into our relationships and into the world. And it transforms the world around us. If the peace of Christ's kingdom is going to come, we, his followers, can't think and act like the beast inspired by the dragon, but must act like the lamb that was slain, empowered by the Holy Spirit. Amen? To to say that Jesus' kingdom is not of this world isn't so much talking about geography, though, some relevance to that, but that's not the point. It's talking about the way it operates. The way one comes to power in this kingdom. It's not of this world. His kingdom does not operate and does not come to power in the same way earthly kingdoms come to power. And that's exactly why it can bring peace in the earth. And why kingdoms of this world cannot and never will be able to bring peace. Because peace at the end of a sword is no peace. See, Rome brought peace. The Pax Romana. It was peace at the end of a sword. Peace through the cross. No, not the same way Christ's peace was through the cross. It was peace by crucifying their sons and daughters, or their sons, just to make sure they stayed in submission. That's one way of bringing peace through the cross. Jesus brought peace through the cross in an entirely other way, by giving himself up for us. By shedding his blood on our behalf. His peace is... The exact opposite of Rome's peace. And that brings us to just some closing thoughts on our third point, which is the sword you face. What what is the only crime that those infant boys of Bethlehem committed for which they were killed by Herod's sword? They were two or under. They They were innocent by any worldly standard of a crime. There is only one reason for which they were sought. What was it? They resembled Jesus. They were about the same age as Jesus. And that's the only reason they were sought. When we are conformed to Jesus, we too will experience the wrath of the world in one form or another. It won't be for our crazy things we say on Facebook, it won't be for our politics, it won't be, but, but when we're conformed to Jesus, we will receive wrath from the world for different, for, for reasons that we should be. When we attempt to love the 
nondescript guy who's been beat up and lays on the side of the road, there will be people who tell us that we should not take them in and care for them. By the way, that nondescript guy who's beat up and lays on the side of the road, I mean, who would remember the parable if it was called the parable of the nondescript guy who was beat up and laid on the side of the road? We call it the parable of the Good Samaritan, but he's not the main character. The main character is the guy who's not described in any other way other than he's beat up and lays on the side of the road. So, of course, we give it a name that at least will be more memorable than that. And maybe that's good. But he's the main character. What do we do with him? That's the point. When we forgive, there will be people who think we are crazy. When we don't return evil for evil, there will be people who think we are crazy. And when I, when I saw the response, this is a few years ago now, but the response of the Mother Emanuel uh, AME Church there in, in, in Charleston, South Carolina, it, it, that was a holy moment. And yes, that drew the attention of the world to Christ's likeness and how they forgave. That was amazing. But trust me, there were many who thought they were crazy. You, you don't, no, you don't forgive like that. You don't love like that. When we give to the one who asks of us, people will actually oppose us. If the Herods of the world are coming to look for Jesus in order to kill him, the question for us this Christmas is, will, they, will those Herods of the world find you and me? Will we resemble Jesus enough that we might be mistaken for him? Do we look enough like Christ that we might be taken in the rage of the world against Christ? The world doesn't hate Christians. The world hates Christ. Well, they might hate Christians, but for other reasons. But it's when Christians are like Christ that we, receive, we, we, we encounter real persecution. How, what are your ways like when you're offended? When, when you deal with those who are your enemies? What are your ways like when you want a position of power? Would people recognize Herod more or Christ more? Might one look at how you treat your enemies and think that you are Christ-like or Herod-like? Would one look at how you respond to somebody who slaps you on one cheek and think you are Christ-like or Herod-like? Christ's reign means peace on earth. It's a peace that Christ brings at a price to Himself, reconciling us to God. It's also a peace that will spread as those He reconciles then spread it at a cost to themselves. Why a cost? Because there are those who resist this peace. To borrow from our modern cultural lore, the empire strikes back. And that calls for the return of the Jedi, the return of disciples of Christ in whom the Spirit works to conform them into the image of Christ. And what we've described this morning as we've looked at what it looks like to walk out this peace, that is the image of Christ in the world. It's what Christ has called us to be and do and live in the world. Let's pray.
O come, O come, Emmanuel, and ransom your captive people. Lord, you have come. You have ransomed us. We give you praise and honor and thanks. But having ransomed us, you've transferred us into the kingdom of the Son you love. And now you call us to put off everything that breeds hostility and to put on everything that breeds peace. Power us by your Spirit to do that, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.